Last week, we began a new study in the book of Hosea, and we were immediately introduced to what you could say kind of would be an odd couple. There was a man by the name of Hosea uh, who was a good and faithful and giving and nurturing husband, and he was married to a woman who was uh, Gomer, who was a strange name to begin with, uh, who was a perpetually uh, unfaithful and adulterous wife. Now, the significance of this relationship is it was to demonstrate what it was like for God to be in a relationship with His people, the people of Israel. And the significance of that is, is for all believers of all times because it serves as an object lesson uh, of our misguided love uh, for the things of this world and God's unrelenting love for us. Now, I think that some of you have probably heard somebody from, on occasion say, maybe you've said it yourself, uh, maybe you've heard someone say, you know what, I just don't believe a holy God would, now you fill in the blank and a whole myriad of different things. I just don't believe a loving God would ever send somebody to hell. I just don't believe a loving God would ever allow somebody to, serve, to suffer. I just don't believe a loving God would ever want me to be unhappy. And let me just suggest this. Let me suggest that you and I need to be extremely careful and what we definitively, definitively decide what a, a loving God will or will not do. Here's why. Uh, because even though he knows us thoroughly, completely, in fact, Psalm 44 says that he even knows our inward secrets, which means he knows things about us that nobody else knows, uh, that, that we ourselves sometimes aren't even aware of. God knows us in that way, uh, but yet we don't know him in that way. In fact, we are restricted to know of him based on what it is that he has so sovereignly chosen to reveal to us about him through the word of God. And that's what's so great about studying the Bible. It's what's so great about studying books like the book of Hosea because it is very clear that this book shows what God thinks, feels, and responds, or how he responds, when his people fall away to them in spiritual adultery. In other words, in chapter 2, we see what, God, what our loving God does when he seeks to draw us back to himself when our hearts have gone astray. And so, as you see this morning, we're going to be taking of the Lord's Supper, but let's allow the Word of God to teach us exactly what it is that God does, that a loving God does to draw you and I back to himself when you and I go astray after other gods. So three things we want to point out this morning. Number one, he extends mercy. He extends mercy. Look, if you will, in the beginning in verse 2. It says, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. A better way, I think, to be able to speak that is as a question for, is she not my wife and am I not her husband? That she put away her whoring from my face and her adultery from between her breasts. Let I strip, uh, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and to kill her with thirst. So here's where our story picks up. It picks up with Hosea, um, um, with Hosea going into his home and there are three kids, one that is most likely his, the two other most likely not his. Uh, and he goes into the home and there's no mother, there's no wife. She's out in an adulterous relationship or a number of adulterous relationships. And he begins to plead, begins to beg with the children, please plead with your mother for her to stop doing what she's doing and to be able to return home. Now, it does seem that Hosea has already been pleading with Gomer to come back home. 
but to, with no success whatsoever. And so now he's hoping that maybe the cry and the pleading of her own children will soften her, soften her adulterous heart and bring her back to where she ultimately belongs. Now, in verse 5, we find out that here that, that Gomer gives the reasons why she left her, her, her husband and her family. Uh, we read in the second half of verse 5, For she said, I will go after my lovers, that is, that she'll go after the thrill of the chase, if you will. She goes, Aunt who, give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. She says, not only is it going to be exciting to me, I'm getting something that I'm not getting within the marriage, but they're also going, I'm also doing it because of the material things that they could ultimately provide for me. So her reason for leaving her husband is because she thinks she can gain something that her husband can't ultimately give her. She's going outside of the marriage relationship. And so she thinks she will gain by doing it. But Hosea warns in verses 3 and 4 of what I, which I just read that if she continues in what she's doing, if she continues to run away and not come back home, she's not going to gain. She's going to lose. In fact, she's going to lose everything. She's going to be stripped of everything that is important to her. And in, in fact, she will be just like a newborn babe coming into the world who has nothing. She will be stripped down exactly like that same way, having absolutely nothing and so this is, this is the call here. This is, this is the warning, and it reminds us very clearly of the lie of the devil, a very common lie of the enemy. Uh, the enemy is always telling you and I this same lie. You will be better off to disobey God. You will gain in your disobedience to God. I know he said no, but I'm telling you, if you do the opposite of what he says, you will ultimately gain in the end. And this is the lie that he's been telling from the beginning of creation, right? With Adam and Eve, what does he say to Eve? He says, he says to her, he says, look, I know that God said the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, but you're not going to die. That's not what's going to happen to you. He goes, you're going to become like God if you eat it. Do you see the game? Disobey, you're going to gain. She falls to the temptation, she eats. Would anybody say she ended up gaining in the end? No. What does she do? She loses everything. She loses, her, she loses her relationship with God. She, loses, she dies spiritually, and ultimately she dies physically, leaving everything ultimately behind. And, but this is what the devil does. But let me just say before we move on that, that there has not been a human being, man, woman, or child, in the history of mankind who has ultimately been better off in their disobedience and sin against God. Never. There's never been a case, and there never will be a case. We're always worse off. In fact, if we continue on, we will, in fact, lose everything the Scriptures say. But here's what's interesting. I keep emphasizing the word ultimately. You won't ultimately gain. You'll ultimately lose. Why, why am I repeating that? Because it's not usually the moment that you and I decide that we're going to begin to stray away from God and begin to pursue other things rather than God that immediately everything falls apart. And that certainly doesn't happen with Gomer. Gomer leaves, but here's what's interesting. As we continue to read, she actually obtains some of the things that she was desiring. She actually gets the wool that she wanted, the water, the bread, the flax, the oil. And so she's getting all these things. The thing that she didn't recognize, however, was the things that she was receiving was not from one of her lovers, but was actually from her faithful husband. If you look at verse 8, it says this, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So here's the picture. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, lays it out great in his commentary. He says, imagine it this way. Here's, here's Hosea in his home. 
with these weeping children. They don't know what to do. Their hearts are broken. Their mom is off with, with different men. And they're left all alone. He's trying to figure out what it is to do. All they know to do is to beg. And then in the midst of this, here's what happens. God tells Hosea, look, your wife is in need. You need to gather all of these goods together, the list that we just listed. Put them all together, and you need to go to her, find her, and you need to give these goods to her to be able to meet her very needs. And so he does. He gets the wool, he gets all the flax, he gets all the things that were, are mentioned here, and he actually finds out where she's staying. And she goes to the home of this man that she's committing adultery with. Can you imagine? And he knocks on the door. And a man comes to the door, and the man asks, Who are you? And he goes, I'm Hosea. He goes, is Gomer here? And he goes, yes, she's here, but what is it to you? And he goes, well, I'm her husband. You can imagine the awkwardness at this point. He steps back and he's beginning to wonder, he's either there to ball her out or knock me out, right? So he's ready to go to fisticuffs, ready to fight. And that's what we said back in the day when I used to mix it up, when I was in, was in, in you know, anyway. And so, so he was ready to be able to fight. Instead of fighting, however... Do you know what Hosea does? He takes all of these goods and he goes, here, would you take this? Give this to my wife, if you will. Um, I want it to be able to meet all of her needs. So he takes it and he takes it inside. He shuts the door and he begins to walk and he says, Gomer, and it's so strange, isn't it? Your wife, Gomer, I still can't get over it. So he goes, Gomer, are you here, sweetheart? Again, weird. But he finds her and he goes, hey, I brought something for you. I've got something for you. And she looks at this lying lover who takes the credit for what he's ultimately given. And she begins to, her eyes sparkle. She embraces him. She begins to love him. And she begins to praise him for what it is that she's ultimately given. The whole time not knowing that what she received was not from this adulterous relationship. It was instead from a gracious God. And this is precisely what is ultimately happening here. And in turn, what does she do? She begins to praise. This is a picture of Israel. Israel at this time had left their worship of God and now was worshiping the Baals, that is, uh, the Canaanite gods of old. And, and, and there's actually not just one Baal, but a number of different Baals, uh, a, a Baal of, of rain and a Baal of, of, um, of, um, of, of the harvest and all these things. And because they want these things more than they want God, they're praying to these false gods to be able to ultimately give it to them. And, and as they pray, guess what happens? They actually receive it. The rains come, the, 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 the crops grow, they harvest this massive harvest, they bring it in. They have enough not only to feed themselves, but to be able to sell, sell in exchange for gold and silver. And then to top it all off, they take that gold and silver and they give it back to these bales as an act of worship, as though it was the bales that gave it to them. And God sits back and he says, no, the things that you ultimately received was not from your false God. It was from me. It was from me who ultimately gave you all of these things. It was not, and it's not because that you are good. It is because ultimately what? God is good. You know, all of us have sat back probably on a time, and I hope we have, if you've been Christian long enough, that you've not known other brothers and sisters in Christ, that you saw them going astray. You saw them doing things and making decisions that were absolutely contrary to the clear teaching of the word of God. And I pray that you are the type of believer that does what Galatians tells us to do. And that is in love and in truth, go to them and say, bro, what you're doing is not going well. It will not end well if you keep doing this. I hope we're that kind of church, right? 
I hope we're not the kind of church that just comes and says, everybody just mind your own business, let people sin as is. I hope we love each other enough that we can confront each other in love and go, bro, I love you so much. I got to tell you, if you keep going in this way, it is not going to end well with you. And if you've ever done that, and I've done it countless numbers of times, here's what's strange about it. Usually that person leaves from the conversation that we have and things, their head doesn't fall off from that discussion. They don't walk out and their car blows up or, or their house begins to fall in. They walk out and guess what? No lightning strikes. Life keeps going on. In fact, nothing bad happens. In fact, sometimes good things begin to happen. The person running from God immediately after seems like they're more happy than ever before, that they've received everything that they were ultimately seeking for. But that's the problem. But then they sit back and they begin to think and they might even look and they've even come back to me and maybe they've come back to you and say, bro, you were wrong in this whole thing. This was the right decision for me to go this way. I could not be happier. Things could not be better. And one thing that we have to warn individuals like this is, hey, bro, you're going in that direction, but you're not being blessed because you are doing good. You are doing evil. You are being blessed because God is extending his mercy and his grace to you in despite the fact that you are doing what is wrong. So just as Hosea felt the pain of, of, of his wife's adultery, so God feels. So God feels pain of our betrayal. But, but, but God in his love does not always instantly go off on us. It doesn't instantly discipline us. Instead, one author says, whereas you and I might respond to betrayal with resentment or spite or anger, God's response with, God responds with mercy in giving us what we clearly do not deserve. You say, well, why in the world would he do this? I think the answer is found in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. God is patient towards you and me, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. He's good to us so that we would sit there and go, wait a minute, in light of, in light of my sin, God is still good to us. It's to be able to turn us back. Christian, do not misinterpret God's mercy that he extends to you when you are pursuing sin as though God is pleased with you. God is not doing it because he is pleased with you. It's not a sign of his approval, but it is the desire that his goodness would lead you back to repentance and lead you back to him. So the first thing he does is he extends mercy. The second thing that he does is he creates barriers. And so notice this, and, and, and track with me the kind of the way of thought. Uh, she wants to go off, get something she's not getting from the relationship. Uh, she goes off, uh, the, she begins to receive some of those things, but guess what's happened? It's not coming from her lover, it's coming from uh, her husband, it's coming from God himself. So we need to take note of that. But, but understand something, this will not last forever. God will not continue to extend that grace and mercy in that same way. He will, be, be assured, if we don't respond to his goodness and repentance, he will come after us sternly through his loving discipline to be able to discipline us so that we do not ultimately destroy ourselves. God is not in the enabling business. He's not going to give you what you want to enable you to continue in idolatrous sin. He's just not going to do it. Look at verse 6. Therefore, I will, I will hedge her, I will, excuse me, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than, uh, uh, than, uh, than now. 
And so here's the picture. Uh, in those ancient days, apparently everybody and everything wanted to kill you during these ancient times. And so to protect yourself, you would constantly have to put up barriers between you and them. So if you were in the wilderness, a person would go and they would cut out all of these big thorn bushes and they would place them in a circle around them. They and their family would then go to sleep in the middle of the night, which would keep any wild animal from, from trying to come in, pursue them, and ultimately harm them. Walls worked in the same exact way. There was no city that didn't have a wall, no home that didn't have a wall, again, to be able to keep those who would want to pursue and harm them at bay so they would be safe behind this wall. What God is saying here is he's saying that he was going to build, build a wall of protection around the people of Israel, kind of a hedge of protection. And, and my mind always goes to the story of Job when, when, when I reference this idea of a wall of protection or a hedge of protection. If you remember in the story... Uh, God comes to Satan, approaches Satan, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? Which is always interesting because everything was going perfectly for Job until God decides that he's going to confront the devil and say, have you considered my servant Job? Thank you, Lord, right? So he says, have you considered my servant Job? Nobody in the whole world is as righteous as he is. That means nobody's doing all the right things like he is. And, and, and so the devil just simply turns and he says, well, of course he's righteous. That is, of course he's doing the right things. It's because you keep blessing his socks off. Look at his family. Look at his kids. Look at his health. Look at his home. Look at his wallet. He's got all that he could ever hope for, all because you bless him because of his obedience. Here's what I tell you to do. You take away that hedge of protection around him. You let me in for a little while. You let me get out his health, at his children, at, at his wealth. And I'm telling you, he'll curse you to his face. But you see the illustration. The illustration is God does put up a hedge of protection to keep those who are seeking to pursue us and destroy us to keep us safe from that enemy. And that's what's going on here, except for it's just the opposite. Instead of putting up these hedges of thorns and these walls to be able to keep the enemy from pursuing and hurting them, he's putting up the walls around them so that they're unable to be able to pursue and harm themselves as they seek after the things of their idolatrous hearts. So they can't get the very things that their idolatrous hearts want. Why? Because it's going to eventually kill them. So he actually puts this up. Isn't this what we do as parents? Look, look, there are times that we, 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 you may have a safety system, you may have an alarm system, you may lock doors. What are you doing? You're trying to keep people from outside in. But sometimes as parents, you and I, we begin to try to build whatever walls we can to be able to keep our children from going wayward and taking and harming themselves. Would you agree? I mean, even with one of our daughters, I told this illustration some time ago, but um, only half of you were here at the time. And so let me, let me share it with you again. Uh, we, had, we had, one of our children literally was an escape artist. You could not... You, you, you could not keep track of this child. And this was true when, they, when she was in the crib. And um, the crib thing is weird. You know, you get the crib and it's like you, the bottom of it's real high, you know, because they can't move. They just, <laughs> and you just kind of pick them up. Then they start to grow and they get up on their knees where you got to lower it a little bit. And then finally they stand up. You got to lower it all the way down. So you lowered her all the way down so they can't get up. And that's what we've done for, we did for one of our daughters. But yet we would hear this crying in the middle of the night and we would rush in and the child would be on the floor fell outside of the crib. Now, listen, I'm telling you, we didn't leave it down here. It was like right where her head is, like right above her head. And, and when she would hold on, she looked like she was in jail, like literally like, I can't get out. And, and we were like, how is she doing this? And so we, 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 we would look again, and, and it's hard as a parent to know how to protect them, right? We're like, well, we can't put barbed wire across the top. That would be bad. 
People are going to judge us for that. Can't put bars over the top. People come over, they're going to, we can't shackle them. You know, that's bad. We're going to, that, this, is, this is not bad. We're, we're not trying to harm them. We're just trying to do whatever we can to keep them from har- harming themselves. So my wife comes up with this brilliant idea. Uh, our, our kids always wear those onesies, which I think are awesome with the little feet. And so she goes, well, here's what I'm going to do. She goes, and she comes back and she goes, I figured it out. I said, what? And what she had done is she had sewn up the legs in between the two legs. Because here, here's, how, here's how she was getting out. The way she was getting out was she was putting her hands up at the top, and it's the only flexible Kwiatkowski we have. She would take this leg and put it up on the top like this, right up next to her hands and her head. And then she would get up and she would fall out. So she figured if I just sew the legs together... She ain't going anywhere. And so what we did is we put her in there and we left the door cracked open. Sure enough, we looked in and you see her going. <laughs> and she's frustrated because she can't do what it is that she wants to do. A couple nights later, we hear this screaming and crying again. We go into the room. She's on the floor. And you're like, how in the world she did that? Well, she had taken off the outfit. <laughs> she would not be restrained. And so my wife, she's stubborn, if you know her, in a good way, most of the time. And so she's stubborn in a good way, most of the time. And so she, she decides, oh, you want to play it that way. So she cuts off the legs, the feet of the thing. She turns them around and sews them back up. Then she plops them back on the child and she puts the zipper in the back so that the child can't unzip it. And the problem was ultimately cured. And so here's, I think, what the picture is, and and this is what you and I need to be able to understand, is that God will do what he has to do to keep you and I restrained from pursuing our idolatrous desires by oftentimes putting them out of reach. Something that you want so desperately and you think would be so good, God, because he knows you thoroughly, will know that it will be the very thing that will ultimately destroy you, and he loves you enough to be able to keep you from it. Now, let me suggest something. Let me suggest that pursuing things and wanting to succeed in the area of business and marriage and school and athletics and all of these things is not necessarily wrong or evil. God doesn't want a bunch of apathetic people that don't try and give their effort and try to do what is right and try to succeed in life. In fact, hasn't he planted that in the heart of all of us? Even in the book of creation, he says, now be fruitful and multiply, right? He wants us to take the skills and abilities that we have and do the very best with it as we can in faithfulness and through success. So that's a thing that we would desire. So that in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. However, when the desire and the pursuit of these things becomes greater than our desire for God, God who is ferociously jealous for our affections will in fact keep us from those things. And one of the sure marks, I think, that we, and here's the struggle, when does that happen? Usually idols don't start off being idols in my life. They become idols in my life. I begin to want this and want that and try to struggle certain things. The next thing I know, I'm a million miles away from God and I'm thinking, how did I get here? And now my heart is for these things and not for God. And so one of the sure marks, how, how do we identify it? One of the sure marks of those, that these things have become an idol in our life is based on how we respond when we cannot obtain them. When you can't get the promotion that you want, when you can't get the house you want, when you can't get the relationship that you want, and if you find yourself in the midst of that responding by being depressed and devastated and hopeless and even angry at God for keeping these things from you and from me, then we know that we have passed from what is natural and good to what is sinful and wrong. They become idols inside of our life. There's a third thing that God will do 
not only does he extend grace and, or extend mercy, and not only does he kind of build barriers around keeping us from those things, but he will, if he has to, he will begin to take things away. He'll begin to take things away. So follow the progression for a minute. Uh, here she is, and, and uh, here she is in this particular place. Everything seems to be going okay. He extends mercy. That's not enough. He frustrates her. That's not enough. Now, at the end of verse 7, after he frustrates her and keeps her from these things, and she's frustrated, she does come, at least to an intellectual response, where she says in verse 7, hey, I, I need to go back to my husband. I, I need to go back to him. And, and, and I had it better when I was with him than where I am now. But here's what happens. She doesn't go back. The text suggests that she just continues in her adulterous relationships, which is a reminder for you and I. You may say, you may feel, you may have the intentions of repenting and coming back to God, but that is not the same as repenting and coming back to God. Many people will say all the time, I got to get back in church, I got to get back committed, I got to get back serving, I got to get back in reading the Bible. But just because you intend to do those things doesn't mean that you have a repentive heart it's what you do in the repenting that demonstrates whether it's sincere or not. So she gives lip service. We don't see a true repentance in her life at all. And so here's what God begins to do. He says to her, the problem is she hasn't, she hasn't hit rock bottom yet. So I love her enough to get her there. So he begins to strip things away. Look at verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all of her mirth and her feasts and her moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. This is what happens in prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. Did you see how very clearly in the beginning it sounded like he's talking about a married couple, uh, Hosea? And, and Gomer, then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, we've transitioned into very clearly that God is, that God is speaking about him and Israel because he's talking about these, um, these different feasts that they were having. And he says, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, in which she said, uh, these are the wages which my lovers have given me. I will, make them a, uh, I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and she adorned herself with the ring and the jewelry. And she went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Do you see the drastic turnaround? And the beginning of the story was a woman who you would think would ha had it all. She had a child, she had a loving husband, who cared for her, who looked after for her, who protected for her, her, for her. But for her, for some reason, in her idolatrous heart, it was not enough. She began to pursue it elsewhere, outside of the marriage relationship. And she, as she began to pursue, at first it seemed to be promising, but what ultimately ended up happening, she ended up finding, becoming frustrated because none of these things would ultimately fulfill the way that she would want them to be fulfilled. So she became frustrated, and now... That still wasn't enough. And so now God sits there and says, I'm going to bring her to rock bottom. I'm going to begin to take away not the extras in life, but I'm going to take away the very essentials of life to cause her to turn back to me. Doesn't this sound a little bit like the prodigal son to you? Do you remember in the story of the prodigal son, you have the father and you have the two really creepy kids, right? And in that message, I preached it here once and I entitled it Two Ways to Hell. 
All right, like the first way is being like the Pharisees where you're all self-righteous and you do externally all the things that you're told to do, but there's no love for the father at all. That's one way. I think the second way is what the younger son does where he just sits there and goes, hey, I don't love you at all, dad. I don't care for you. I don't want to be around here. I don't want to obey you. I just want to live life. I want to live and let live, bro. So give me my inheritance. And then we see what the father does. He first extends, does he, does he rip his head off like my dad would do? No. He gives them grace. He gives them his, his, his inheritance. And so he goes off thinking that this is where he's going to get what he wasn't getting at home. Do you remember the story? And so he goes off and he begins to spend on all of these things, all these worldly pleasures. Clearly, they're not feel, fulfilling and satisfying to him. How do we know? Because he keeps having to spend until he has nothing left. He has nothing left, which means that all the things that he thought in the world would ultimately satisfy him, and which a relationship with the Father would not, he finds none of it works until he becomes, until everything is taken away and he finds himself um, eating amongst the pigs and fighting for the food of the pigs. But what happens at the very end? And this is what God is doing. And this is what Hosea is doing with Gomer and God is doing with his people, Luke 15, 17. But when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Do you see what he's doing? He finally comes to the point when it's all stripped away and said, why did I ever leave? Everything I had, including my father, what my heart truly desires is there. But he didn't know it until all was ultimately stripped away. And this is not a curse. This is, in fact, a blessing. When you look in the word of God, you'll see God taking things away and doing very harsh things, not out of hatred, but out of love to try to draw you and I back. And Amos 4, it's another book that we could be leading through very easily. God speaks of a gift that he gave to his people, empty stomachs. That was a gift that he gave to them. He withheld rain so that the people staggered from town to town for water. He demonstrates this as a gift to his people. He, he struck their crops with mildew so that they ultimately spoiled. And and these might seem as strange gifts, but God gives them so that his people might repent. These are terrible things, but spiritual adultery and its consequences are far worse. God always seeks to, 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 uh, the best for his children, best for his people, that they may, uh, that may, but they may see him as best. Famine and feast are acts of divine love when their aim is to bring us back to God. Sometimes... Church, listen to me as your pastor who loves you dearly. Please understand, and this is not me making something up. This is not me saying definitively, this is what God will do with no grounding or basis based on the authority of Scripture. The Scriptures tell us very clearly that sometimes, if he has to, if you run hard and far enough, he will begin to strip things away from your life that you find most precious. And if you sit back and you say to yourself, well, there's no way that a loving God would do that. There's no way that he, he would do all of these things. If you think that he will not take your health, not take your job, not take your money in order for you to bring you to a place of repentance, then you do not know God. And if you're sitting here this morning and go, my God would never. You're right. Your God would never. But you're not serving the God. The Bible says that he loves us enough to be able to to bring pain into our life. Some of the most extraordinary moments of pain to be able to draw ourselves to him. He's willing to be able to do it. 
Now, we have to be careful, I think, because certainly not every bit of pain and physical affliction and loss is, is ultimately from sin, is it? No, the whole book of Job is about a man who didn't deserve suffering at all. In fact, he's suffering. What was God doing? He was still trying to refine his faith. So we always have to be, we always have to be careful. And I've had people uh, in our own church who has come to me and, and basically said, hey, Mike, all these terrible things seem to be happening. And I don't know if it's, am I doing something wrong? Uh, what, what's going on? I said, well, not necessarily. Have you, have you sought the Lord in this? Have you saw him? Because this is what I do believe. I do believe in the midst of anything, we cry out to God and say, God, uh, uh, reveal to me any wicked way that might be in my heart, as the psalmist says, that he will do that. But he usually does it by the power of the Holy Spirit in light of the word of God. You can't be detached from the word of God. So we pray and he ultimately reveals. But here's what I would say to you. I would say, I don't always know, and maybe this is wrong. I'll be rebuked by the elders afterwards. But I don't always know when I'm in the will of God. But I almost always know when I'm not. I almost always know when I'm not seeking him, making him first, seeking him, pursuing him with all my love, but rather my affections have gone other places. This is what I know. So I want to be careful, but at the same time, I know that God will, because he loves me enough, begin to strip away and take away things in my life to be able to draw me to himself. So here's kind of the question. It's kind of like a twofold repentance and praise. There's the two parts of the sermon, I think. Uh, because I think that there might be some here who you actually came to this church and you have decisively determined that you were going to rebel against God, do what is wrong, and right now everything seems to be coming up at roses. And I'm here to be able to warn you, that is not because you have done good. It is because you have a good God who is patiently waiting for you through his adding of goodness to be able to turn your heart back to him. There are some of you right now that are frustrated. Some of you are obtaining the very things that your heart had wanted so long, and you're like, it's empty. Why is this not fulfilling? It was never meant to fulfill you. It was never meant to ultimately satisfy you. There are blessings of God, but the only thing that truly satisfies is what? No, is whom? God. Then there are some, maybe you're at the cusp. You've gone all through that, and now you're at the very cusp where you might very well lose a lot. And the call of God in his love is to send me to preach this word for you to be able to repent and to be able to turn and go back to your first love and to repent. And you know what he'll do? He'll restore you and he'll love you and he'll forgive you. He's not doing it to harm you. He's doing it to do what? To draw you back. Why? Because that's what a loving God does. This is all about a book of God's incredible love for us that seeks after us. But the greatest love that we've ever seen is what? Greatest demonstration is we know that we are loved by God, how that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You don't even need a story about a man and a woman by the name of Gomer. All you need to do is hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in our wickedness and our running from him, while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for you and I, giving his very life. That's how you know he says, if we'd repent and believe, we'd have eternal life, we'd be restored, we'd become children of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for your word, even passages of scripture that seem to be a bit odd, a, bit, a little bit strange, a little bit strange, a little bit strange.